This episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast is sponsored in part by Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety. Law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Episodes of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast may contain strong language and violent content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Rochester, Minnesota. It was founded in 1874 and is the county seat of Olmsted County, located on the Zumbro River's South Fork in southeast Minnesota. It's Minnesota's third largest city, and the largest city outside of the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area, and it's probably best known as the home of the Mayo Clinic. While the state of Minnesota boasts over 14,000 lakes, Rochester, located in Olmsted County, is one of only four counties in the state without a natural lake. Artificial lakes exist in the area, including Silver Lake, a dammed portion of the South Fork Zumbro River just below the convergence with Silver Creek near city center. Silver Lake was once used as a cooling pond when the coal-burning power plant was operated by Rochester Public Utilities at the lake. When operational, the coal plant's heated water output prevented the lake from generally freezing during the winter months, attracting large numbers of migrating giant Canadian geese. The Vietnam War was continuing to escalate with Operation Rolling Thunder, the bombing campaign against North Vietnam. We had over 380,000 American troops serving and fighting there. Public opinion here in the U.S. steadily turned against the war following this year, and just a few years later, only a third of Americans believed that the U.S. had not made a mistake by sending troops to fight in Vietnam. Vietnam, 25 armored boats and troop landing craft cautiously advanced in the Mekong Delta, ordered to find and destroy a Viet Cong detachment virtually unapproachable except by water. Aircraft in strong support. 
Shortly before Christmas that year, more than seven years since they first met, Elvis Presley proposed to Priscilla Bellew. They were then married in the spring of this year in a brief ceremony in their suite at the Aladdin Hotel in Las Vegas. At about four in the morning, Elvis and Priscilla went to the Clark County Courthouse where Elvis paid $15 for a marriage license. Then they drove to the Aladdin Hotel and retired with a wedding set for early that same morning. There were only 14 people at the actual wedding, but a huge reception and press conference followed and almost immediately the news was flashed around the world that Elvis Presley had been married. The Big Mac is a new hamburger sold by the international fast food restaurant chain, McDonald's. It was introduced in the greater Pittsburgh area on this year and would become one of the company's flagship products and signature sandwiches. I'm going to show you how McDonald's builds a a Big Mac sandwich. It starts here with a lightly toasted bun and then a pure beef hamburger, sizzling hot. A slice of cheddar blend cheese and some crisp, fresh lettuce. Then, our own secret sauce. The club slice, toasted. Another hamburger. And a little more sauce, just for good flavor. Crisp dill pickles and the sesame seed crown. This is the sandwich. McDonald's new Big Mac sandwich for the bigger-than-average appetite. McDonald's is your kind of place. The year was 1967. The Rochester Police Department had a 14-vehicle fleet that year, consisting of five marked squad cars, one for each zone and one command car, one unmarked patrol car, one radar unit, two unmarked vehicles for investigations work, one for detectives and one for juvenile officers, a vehicle for a warrant service, two motorcycles, and two motorized scooters for meter monitoring. An interesting fact from that year, RPD used 45,221 gallons of gasoline during the year, which cost a total of $8,659.68, which is less than 20 cents a gallon. Top pay back then was $571 a month for patrol officers. At full staff, the department had grown to just under 100 sworn officers, with just over 60 of them serving as patrolmen. Over half of the sworn staff was assigned to the patrol function, working shifts of seven consecutive eight-hour shifts with a rotating schedule. So they'd serve seven days working 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., followed by two days off. Then seven nights, 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., followed by two days off. Then, seven evenings, 6 a.m. to 2 p.m., followed by three days off. John Sibley was one of the officers with the Rochester Police Department back in 67. Back then, we worked uh, rotating ships, and we had uh, four platoons. That Each platoon rotated through a 28-day cycle, frankly, was murder. But uh, in a 28-day cycle, we'd work seven nights, seven day shifts, and seven afternoon shifts. So you're kind of in a state of, of uh, uh, I don't know, shock most of the time because you just be constantly switching. You never get a chance to catch up, you know. This four-platoon schedule was adopted in January of 1966 and remained in effect for 20 years, with the only modification being a change in the order of the shifts made late in the 1980s. 
Officer John Sibley, who retired as Deputy Chief back in 1998, was instrumental in changing this grueling schedule. Rochester had a population of around 50,000 people back in 1967, which was much larger than the 2,500 who lived in Haley's hometown in South Dakota. Floyd Joseph Haley was born June 11, 1927, to Virgil and Margaret Haley in Chamberlain, South Dakota. Floyd's father, Virgil, was a longtime sheriff of Brule County and previously served as an officer for the Chamberlain Police Department. Floyd enlisted in the military on May 8th of 1945 at Fort Snelling in Minnesota. According to his youngest son, Randy, he lied about his age so he could enlist. He lied about getting in. He got in in May of uh, 1945, right basically when you know, the Germans gave up. But he did go to Germany and, and he was in military police. Floyd didn't want to wait until his birthday in June, so he listed his birth date on his draft card as May 7th and enlisted on May 8th. He would soon be deployed to Germany, where he served as a military policeman during World War II. Two years later, he married Don King, who was also from Brule County, on July 19th, 1947. They would have four children while in Chamberlain, Nancy, Ken, Patty, and their youngest son, Randy. While in South Dakota, Floyd had been working at a local grocery store. It was a business in Chamberlain, just down the road from his parents' place, until 1953, when he and Don decided to move to Rochester, Minnesota, to be closer to where Don grew up in the Fairbolt, Otana area, just south of the Twin Cities. I remember that grocery store was only two blocks from where my grandparents lived in Chamberlain, and he, and he got a job at Piggly Wiggly, and he, he became the produce manager. Floyd found work at a local grocery store in Rochester until applying for and getting hired as a police officer with the Rochester Police Department a few years later in 1958. He was badge number 12. Floyd started the same day as fellow officer and friend Fred Kelly. We both went on the police department the 23rd of June, 1958. We were the only two officers to go on together. Training and recruiting for new officers was a little different back in 1967. Back then, we had two weeks of training, in-house training, by the captain, the detective, the captain, the juvenile, a couple of the other officers. When I went on the police department, uh, Rochester was looking for officers that were married, that had families, that knew what a domestic relationship trouble could be, you know. That, that was the main thing. We had very little uh, work, about, uh, work up about tickets or how to write a ticket. Domestics were one of their primary calls back then, especially after payday. Normally, we'd, we'd have, especially towards the weekend, when the, uh, uh, the labor force in Rochester, because they were always building something for the Mayo Clinic, you know. When that labor force got paid, we would have a lot of, of domestics. Guys would go spend half their paycheck in the bar and then go home and beat the hell out of the wife because they didn't have any money left, you know. So we had a lot of those house kind of calls. We had some bar calls, but not many. 
we didn't have any gangs or anything that caused any problems. Floyd's youngest son, Randy, was 15 years old back in 1967. He did love to play cards and poker with especially the police buddies. He would he would come home and he'd be you know, like at the American Legion or from the Eagles Club. Or I remember even sometimes we had poker parties in the basement of our house. And I'd even help, you know, for nickel or dime, get, get, help get the beer or do <laughs> snacks for him. And he, hell, like we, had eight, we had eight cops downstairs in the basement at this big poker table. He, he, he would go hunting. He would go hunting for a pheasant or deer. I do remember one time he did go bear hunting in Wyoming. At least that's what he told us. He didn't like no sports. I mean, he really wasn't a sports nut at all. The Haley kids remember that Floyd especially disliked golf. He just he just could not understand how anybody would hit a little white ball around the field. It just made no sense to him. <laughs> he had no clue what <laughs> he could care less about golf. <laughs> Back in 67, Bert Berge was a young rookie deputy for the Olmstead County Sheriff's Office. I knew Floyd quite well. Prior to my going to work with the Sheriff's Office, which was May of 67, prior to that, I'd spent a couple of years as a volunteer with the Rochester Police Reserve. In them days, police reserves or part-time officers, all you did is ride with another officer. You never drove cars or got involved in anything. So I had rode with Floyd a number of times, or I don't know how many, a few times. So I got to know him personally. Plus, his daughter had babysat for us. I had two little boys at that time, and his daughter babysat for us. So I got to know a little bit more of the family in that sense. Well, I remember him being strict. I mean, I had to, you know, we all had chores to do and different things. And you, you couldn't mouth off. You, you, never get, you better not get caught swearing. He had a very dry sense of humor, my sister would say. My sister would say that he was very funny. You know, I was the youngest of the, the, the four kids, and I, I'm pretty sure my mom kept me out of the trouble because my, my brother got into a lot of trouble with doing different things. And I kind of learned and watched from them what not to do, you know. And he was, I mean, he would, you know, when we were little kids, I mean, he would take out his belt, he'd smack us, you know, on the button. You know, I think it mainly scared us. It was the early morning of August 6th, 1967. Temperatures were mild in the mid-60s. Skies were clouding up. They were expecting rain and thunderstorms that morning. Officers Fred Kelly and Floyd Haley had lunch together that night. Floyd and I, the two of us, checked out at the police department, went downstairs in our locker room, and we had bag lunches down there that we had. Him and I had lunch together that night at uh, 3.35, somewhere after 3.30, because we were down there eating when the, when the sergeant at the desk called down to give us our new assignment. Now, our city was divided in four sections at that time. We had north, south, east, and west, four sections. And we had a car, we had a car in each section. And then we had a doubled car, usually downtown. So we had 
four cars, five cars. The two beat men that were downtown walking the beat, they would get into a third car, another car downtown. So we had two double cars. But normally, each one of us had a zone. And it was that particular night, I was in Northeast Rochester, and Floyd was in Southeast Rochester. We got our new assignments. I went Northwest, and Floyd went Northeast. So he went up into my area, and I went over into a new area. And the last thing that we said when we walked out the door was how tired we were because we had just started uh, nights. You know, we don't. We started Wednesday. This was Friday night, and uh, we went seven nights of uh, night work, and then we rotate to a different to afternoons, and then to morning. You you can't get used to that, you know. And so we both were really tired, and. Uh, Last thing I said to him, I said, Jesus, I sure hope I can stay awake. And he said, me too. And out the door, we got in our cars, and I went northwest, and he went northeast. During the overnight hours, Rochester Police Department's dispatch would do a status check at the top of each hour for each officer on duty. After midnight, uh, every hour on the hour, our dispatcher would call for a time check. But then he'd say one o'clock. And then we would start with the bottom numbered car and we'd check in. And when it come to 15, it was usually 11, 17, 15, 21, 25. That was about the what we had for cars. When it come to 15, Floyd didn't answer. They waited a minute and then the next one answered and then we got them all answered but Floyd. Then they started calling him again. As they neared the end of their shift, squads were coming in for fuel. And again, they didn't hear from car 15, the Northeast Town Car, Officer Floyd Haley. Deputy Bert Berge was working with the Olmstead County Sheriff's Office that night. He worked patrol until 2 a.m. At 2 a.m., all the county patrol deputies would go home for the night. They didn't have 24-hour coverage. And they would have an on-call deputy or sheriff available until later that morning. Bert was assigned to stay on as the jailer dispatcher for the county. During the night, probably from, well, from the time that I was on the board dispatching, they were calling his car number, Floyd's car number, ever so often, and were concerned because they hadn't heard from him for a long time. However, they knew that that same squad car had had radio trouble the night before, and they just said, well, the radio must not have working. Anybody sees him, stop and tell him his radio is not working, is what was going around all the time prior to that. Then they finally sent cars to start looking for him. They quickly stopped to gas up their squads, and then they all went out to search for the missing officer. Officer Fred Kelly headed towards Floyd's patrol area in Northeast Rochester, checking businesses along the way. He was concerned about posture boats next to Recreational Lane's bowling alley on the north edge of town on Broadway. Posture's family business had a number of recent thefts that summer, and he and Floyd had planned on doing surveillance there to try and catch the thieves that had been plaguing that business lately with multiple thefts. 
Fred eventually arrived at the recreational lanes bowling alley. This was on the north edge of the city limits of Rochester. There was a single lane, essentially a dirt road, on the north side of the bowling alley that led to an old quarry. On the north side of that road was a warehouse, and then the boat store owned by the Posture family. While Officer Kelly was driving through that area, he noticed a light bar and a white top of a squad down in a grassy area behind the bowling alley. Fred drove down to the squad car and identified it to dispatch as Floyd Haley's car. He got out and started to walk around the squad. Drove in, I see this car in the ditch, and I drove in. I think he's out of the car just a minute. I'm trying to give him any kind of, you know, leeway I can. Got out, went down to his car, and they, of course, he wasn't in the car, and it was, they were still calling him. And uh, I come back up to my car, and as I stepped around, went around my car, uh, he was laying right there next to me. Yeah. Fred could see that Floyd was in full uniform, his gray short-sleeved shirt and dark blue pants. He could see blood on the left shoulder of his shirt. He also immediately noticed that Floyd's service holster was empty. His revolver was gone. Fred then immediately went back to his squad. He radioed for help from both the other officers as well as Gold Cross Ambulance. It was 5.52 a.m. Fred hollered and said what it was. Them days, we had just uh, press a button and we talked to Gold Cross and press another button and talked to Pulver's, just the intercom thing between the sheriff's office and those places. I remember I hit the button as soon as Fred said he found him and he shot or he was down. I hit the button and called Gold Cross because I knew all the guys over there because I worked there part-time too. So sent them to out to direct lanes right away. Fred then drew his revolver and he returned to Officer Haley. He was concerned about Floyd's revolver. He was concerned whether or not Floyd's shotgun was taken. He didn't know who shot Floyd or why or whether the suspects may still be there. He put his hand on Officer Haley's neck and it was cold to the touch and rigid. Fred knew that Floyd was dead. He also noticed Floyd's flashlight and cap were also missing. Several officers were now arriving to assist in searching the area for clues. Several feet south of Haley's body, there was a brown, reddish spot on the gravel and scuff marks in the road. John Sibley worked the day shift that morning on August 6th. I was working day shift the next day. When we got into roll call, we learned that he had apparently interrupted a burglary at the old wreck lane. Well, of course, everybody's on edge because, you know, when we learned that Floyd had been killed, you know, you don't know how well, big of a group is this that was involved, and, and everybody is pretty much on edge through that whole thing. Are we going to run across them on a routine traffic stop or whatever?
Clark A. Tuttle Jr. was a 16-year veteran of the Rochester Police Department and was a detective that night. Detective Tuttle was called in at 6 a.m. and he responded to the scene. Officers at the scene showed him where Haley's body was found, a short distance beyond the car on the north side of the roadway. Tuttle could see Officer Haley's body. He was lying face down in the weeds. He could see Floyd had been shot in the shoulder. As officers rolled him over, they could see he had also been shot in the midsection. It would soon start raining. The weather bureau suggested up to two inches were possible with the storms rolling through. The focus at the scene was now to preserve, photograph, and record evidence before they lost it. Floyd's cap was found about 50 feet from his body. According to Chief Mackin, he said it looked like someone had simply tossed it from the scene. One of the toughest things for a chief or sheriff to do is to notify an officer's family that he or she has been killed. Again, it was a rainy night and it was a Sunday morning and it was the last day of the fair. And uh, they're, I guess they're knocking the door. Mom went, you know, all of our bedrooms were upstairs. And we had a three-story house. And, uh, Mom had went down and answered the, the chief of police and a priest that uh, told her, you know, basically said, you're, you're, you know, Floyd's been shot. And I'm assuming they said killed. But they would have known at that point, you know, whether it was six or seven in the morning, I'm guessing. For some reason, Mom got the other three kids up but didn't wake me up. Just let me sleep for another extra hour or two for some reason. I don't know. My brother came to my bed and said, wake up, Randy, you know, get out of bed, dead and shot. As you can imagine, to be notified that your husband or your wife was killed in the line of duty is most law enforcement spouses' biggest nightmare. It's hard enough for spouses to try and make sense of things, but to four teenage brothers and sisters, to be told their dad was gone is just traumatic and it puts everyone in a fog. Randy was just 15 years old. You know, I was pretty much in, in shock. I mean, there was four kids. The, Nancy was the oldest, and uh, I, to be honest with you, Scott, I, I, I don't think she was even at the house that much because she was 19, and she had a boyfriend, and they got married the next year. My brother was 17 and probably 11th grade, or, or going to go into 11th grade, and, and he got the hell out of there, went into the Marines. He and my mom did not get along. Probably the best thing that ever happened to him. I, I, you know, I just went back to school, and they, even the teachers, you know, would would kind of be kind of careful or be kind of aware. They knew when the other kids. I, I had this other this friend of mine that uh, we, we kind of you know grew up together in that same area, and uh, still remember him coming up. And he says, "If anybody gives you any shit, you let me know, and I'll take care of it." And then a month later, he gets shot and killed on a hunting accident. The kids were understandably in shock. This stuff just didn't happen in Rochester, Minnesota. Robert King, Steve Britt, and Larry Kuntz were troubled kids from Austin, Minnesota. King was 20, Britt 18, and Kuntz was just 17 years old. 
They were driving back and forth to Rochester. They had some girls that they knew in one of the apartment buildings. And King had a history of prowling and burglary. That evening and early Sunday morning, they had been cruising Rochester in King's 58 Plymouth. Koontz was carrying a 25 caliber pistol that Brits had bought about a week before at a hardware store in the Miracle Mile Shopping Center in the southwest part of the city. Authorities would find out later that the three had burglarized another business earlier in town before King decided they were going to break into the Recreational Lanes Bowling Alley, which is now known as Bolosity located at 2810 North Broadway. And what these guys had done, they had pulled their car in on that little road just to the north of it. It went. There was a little road that went into this quarry, and it was a single road. There was no way that you could get two cars on it. It was a single path road that went in. And they had pulled in there, parked the car, got out, went around to the back of the building, and the juvenile was up on top of the brim watching for, because it was high enough, you could see out to the highway, both north and south, to see if anybody was coming. So he's up there and they're down on the, uh, on the back door trying to take the pins out of the back door. So when you get the pins out, pop the pins out, then you crowbar the door from the jam side, leaving the lock in the, the door and just take the door off, right? That's what they were trying to do. They had one or two pins out when Floyd pulled up. It was Koontz working on the door with the crowbar when King saw a car pulling onto the road from Broadway with no lights on. He quickly realized it was a police car. King told Koontz and Britt that the cops were there, and they had to run back to the car. As they were running from the building, King told Koontz to give him the gun, and he told them if the cop came over to them, they would have to shoot him. Koontz said he wouldn't do it, and he gave the gun to King as he and Britt continued back towards King's car and hid in the tall grass. There, they watched the squad car come down the road. Floyd, when he goes, heads over to the boat place, looks and sees their car parked on this road back in probably 50 feet or so, 60 feet. He checks the, the boat place out and comes right back around, still with his lights off, and pulls in behind their car. Floyd stopped his car and blocked their car. He was facing east. Their car was facing west. He parked around 8 feet from King's car. Officer Haley, with flashlight in hand, exited his squad car, and he walked towards the Plymouth, and he shined the flashlight in it to check if anyone was in there. He goes up to the car and looks in with a flashlight, and the back seat is full of beer, cases of beer. They had been to another bowling alley over in my area, northwest area, broke in there and taken cases of beer, enough to fill the back seat up, and then busted into the uh, machines they had out there and, and taken all of the coins and stuff and grabs a bunch of cigarettes. They had those in this car. Anyway, 
when he walks up to the car, he looks at the back and it's full of beer cases and cigarettes and stuff like that on the floorboards. He turns around to go back to his car to call it in now. Floyd then shined his flashlight out into the weeds and he started walking back towards his squad. Then King jumped up out of the weeds and said, reach, ordering Haley to put his hands up. King then started yelling for Larry and Steve to come up and help them. He wanted them to come up and get the cop's gun. Floyd, likely trying to figure out how many he was up against, said, come on up and help your buddy. Reluctantly, the two walked up where King and Floyd were standing. Britt walked up behind Officer Haley and he pulled his service revolver out of his holster. He then walked around the squad and handed the gun to King. Kuntz then moved around to the right rear door of King's car and he stood there watching. King held Floyd's 38 revolver up. He pointed it at Floyd and he told him, you know you shouldn't have walked down here. Floyd replied, yeah, I know that now. King then pulled the trigger, striking Haley in the midsection. Haley groaned and started to fall, and then King pulled the trigger two more times. The second round hitting Floyd in the shoulder and then missing him on the third round as Floyd fell to the ground. King walked over and dragged Floyd by his feet off the road to the north and checked his pulse. King told them the cop was dead. King then got into the running squad car. He drove it off the roadway into the tall grass about 50 feet from Floyd's body. With Floyd's gun and his flashlight, they jumped back into King's car and they took off. The three drove north out of Rochester and down a county road where they threw out a bunch of the stolen beer and cigarettes that they had from the previous burglary. Then they drove back into town on Highway 63 to Silver Lake. That's where they stopped, and King instructed them to throw the cops' stuff into the lake. Britt threw Floyd's service revolver into the lake. Coons threw the flashlight. They left Silver Lake, and then they headed south out of Rochester. They drove west back to Austin, and they stopped at a truck stop for breakfast, and then went to King's brother's house. Authorities would find out later that King told two brothers, Ron and Dick, about killing the officer and shared the details of what happened. However, nobody chose to report it. Back at the bowling alley, detectives and officers suspected that Floyd must have pulled in and interrupted a burglary at the bowling alley, blocking the suspect's car in before he got shot. That's all the information they had to go on at that time. Floyd's body was transported to the coroner's office. Theodore O. Wellner was the Olmsted County coroner. According to Wellner's report, he suspected the first bullet hit Floyd in the midsection. He suspected the second shot may have hit him in the shoulder as he was going down. He also indicated he believed the trajectory of the bullets didn't support the idea of Floyd being shot on the ground, that he was standing when he got shot. Wellner indicated the cause of death was due to hemothorax. The bullet that entered the midsection just to the right of his sternum nicked a portion of his heart and then lodged near his spine. This caused his left chest to fill up with blood. A hemorrhage like this due to injury to the heart results in massive hemothorax, which is rapidly fatal. 
The second bullet entered between Floyd's left shoulder blade and spine. It was recovered near the base of his neck. Authorities at the time had no way to know a third bullet was fired until they started canvassing the area, finding several neighbors who heard three shots at around 4.15 a.m. that morning. A single shot and then two quick shots and then a vehicle leaving the area at a high rate of speed. Unfortunately, nobody called the police to report it. Later, on that same Sunday, after the murder of Floyd Haley, Minneapolis police reported they had responded to a hit-and-run accident where a male party, later identified as 31-year-old Glenn Salmonson, pulled a gun on them and forced them to drive him through the city until they ran into a highway divider and crashed, allowing them to disarm him. Minneapolis PD said they recovered burglary tools in the trunk of his car, along with the 38 caliber pistol he used to kidnap them. Salmonson had ties to Rochester. The following day, he was questioned by Rochester police detectives, and they indicated he was a person of interest in the murder of Officer Floyd Haley. Unfortunately, there was little evidence to help with this murder investigation. Remember, there was little forensic technology back in those days. This was 1967. The first ever handheld calculator was created by Texas Instruments that year. That was their technology. Surveillance cameras for businesses wouldn't be prevalent for nearly another 30 years. There were no computers, there were no cell phones, and the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension would be forced to rely on a variety of basic scientific tools in hopes it would help them find Floyd's killer. Checking the Primarchs from the bowling alley door, checking fingerprints and a palm print found on Haley's squad car, and ballistics on the bullets recovered from Floyd's body. Their ballistics experts quickly determining that the bullets recovered from Floyd's body didn't match up with Samuelson's gun. They were back to square one with no suspects. King, Britt, and Kuntz were still free, but not for long. The three would continue to burglarize properties, including the Sears and Roebuck warehouse in Rochester. Officer Floyd Haley's funeral was held just three days after he was murdered at St. Francis Catholic Church on August 8, 1967. It was attended by over 1,000 mourners, including over 230 law enforcement officers from throughout southeast Minnesota. I remember coming outside and seeing all the cops on both sides and saluting, and, and there's just a great lot of, you know, the place was packed this day. The funeral procession was led by a motorcycle officer. It arrived at the church at 6.30 p.m., where an honor guard and a firing squad from the American Legion were waiting. After the funeral, six Rochester uniformed officers, including Fred Kelly, served as pallbearers as they carried the flag-draped casket out of the church into the Cadillac hearse for the procession to Calvary Cemetery in Rochester where Floyd would be laid to rest in full military and police honors. There at the cemetery, an honor guard, the American Legion, was waiting. They fired a 21-gun salute, and they presented Mrs. Haley with the American flag 
that covered Floyd's casket. Coincidentally, the legionnaire who played Taps was veteran Harry Erickson. Harry fought in World War II and would later become the father-in-law to one of the daughters of Rochester's first officer fallen in the line of duty, William Freitag. Harry's young son, Ron, who would marry Freitag's daughter, was 13 years old at the time of Floyd's murder, and he attended Floyd's funeral with his father, Harry. On August 21st, King was arrested for the Sears and Roebuck warehouse burglary in Rochester, but he wasn't suspected yet in Floyd's murder. While no other details were given on how King was identified or arrested, for the next day and a half, he was interrogated by police regarding the Sears burglary and other burglaries in Rochester. On August 23rd, while being interviewed, he initially implied that he was a witness to the murder, and he gave detectives information that led to the recovery of Haley's gun in Silver Lake. It was during this interrogation that the identities of Kuntz and Britt were discovered by officers. On August 24th, King led the officers to the place where the boys had thrown the revolver and flashlight. Authorities then started searching for the gun and the flashlight. They arranged to have Silver Lake drained and had searchers on shore working big magnets across the lake, as well as searchers in rowboats working the center channel of the lake with large magnets on ropes. Floyd's 38 revolver would eventually be found shortly before 9 o'clock in the morning, with a magnet in about 10 feet of water, about three blocks east of the North Broadway Bridge. Floyd's flashlight was never found. They would now bring Coons and Britt in on burglary charges, and then they would question them on Floyd's murder. Fortunately for detectives, it didn't take King long to start talking about the murder while he was in custody. King started bragging to the other inmates about his IQ and about how he knew everything. A fellow detainee would later testify in trial that he asked King why he was in jail, and King told him that he had killed a cop. Jeff, who was a 17-year-old detainee in the Olmsted County Jail during the trial, recalls Britt being pretty timid, but he said King was different. Britt kind of saved himself. He wasn't saying nothing, really. He was more, he was kind of timid, more scared than anything. Where King, just seeing him on the look on his face, he wasn't, didn't show any remorse or anything for what happened. You know, he just could see it, and they pulled him out, and he was kind of smiling, and you know, just, God, here's a guy charged with murder and he ain't taking it too seriously. Another detainee testified that King bragged to him about killing a cop. When asked by the detainee why he was in, he said he shot the cop, Haley. He explained the incident in detail. He described shooting Floyd once, then he explained that Floyd groaned, and then he shot him two more times. Authorities now felt they had enough to indict and charge King with the murder of Officer Floyd Haley. On the evening of September 20th, a grand jury indicted Robert King for murder in the first degree and set his bond at $20,000. Stephen Britt, who was 19 at the time, was also named in the grand jury indictment, charged as an accomplice to the murder of Officer Floyd Haley. 
Larry Kuntz, who was charged in the Sears burglary, testified before the grand jury for 65 minutes on behalf of the prosecution. That following day, on the 21st, King and Britt would both be charged. King with first-degree murder and Britt with being an accessory. At the time, both crimes carried the same penalty, life in prison. King was arraigned on October 6, 1967, and he pled not guilty. The defense would argue that King was mentally ill and unfit to stand trial. After several evaluations and testimony from doctors for both the defense and prosecution, on October 13th, Judge O. Russell Olson ruled King was fit to stand trial. Also, a change of venue was argued and agreed to. The trial would be moved to Freeborn County, to the courthouse in Albert Lee, due to all the publicity in Rochester. King would be held in the Freeborn County Jail. Britt would remain in the Olmsted County Jail, and Kuntz was being held in Lionel Lakes for the burglary. After a lengthy pretrial hearing, the court suppressed King's confession and evidence discovered as the result of it. The defense argued King was read his Miranda warning six times during this interrogation. This warning is usually read by police from a printed card. It advises suspects they have a right to remain silent and a right to an appointed attorney if they can't afford one. Their argument was that King actually did ask for an attorney, that he asked for an attorney while he was being arraigned that same day for the Sears burglary, and that it took the courts two more days to get him a court-appointed attorney. It was between the time of arraignment and being appointed an attorney when he admitted to killing Haley. The defense said King knowingly invoked his right to remain silent when he asked for the attorney and that he should not have been questioned by police until his lawyer was appointed and present, even though the questioning was on a different case. The prosecution would argue that without King's confession and the gun that was found because of it, the state's case would virtually dissolve on appeal by the state. The courts agreed with the defense and ordered that the evidence could not be used in the trial. Evidence, including the gun, and King's confession. They continued to trial with Kuntz's statement to the grand jury and then added the testimony of the detainees that King bragged to while he was in jail. They also got Britt to testify on behalf of the prosecution against King. On March 4th, Coons testified on behalf of the prosecution as to all the events that happened that morning. Britt would later take the stand and confirm Coons' statements, also on behalf of the prosecution. Both testified against their friend, Robert King. After a nine-day trial, the case was sent to the jury to begin deliberations. The jury consisted of eight housewives, two farmers, a factory worker, and a retired power company worker. After deliberating just over eight hours, the jury came back with a guilty verdict of first-degree murder. On March 8, 1968, Robert King was sentenced to life in prison. King showed little emotion when the verdict was read. His mother, Mrs. Richard King of Austin, embraced him, sobbing. 
Back then, a first-degree murder conviction of a police officer meant life in prison with the possibility of parole. This law didn't change in Minnesota until years later in 1993. King would be eligible for parole after 25 years, and with time off for good behavior, he could be paroled about six years earlier. A week after King was convicted, the prosecution dropped the charges against Britt, citing lack of evidence. Britt would then be convicted on the Sears burglary and was sentenced to a term of up to five years. He was paroled from the Minnesota Youth Conservation Commission at the end of May in 1968 after just one and a half months and was returned to Austin under the supervision of the Moore County Parole Office. In exchange for Larry Kuntz's testimony to the grand jury, he wasn't charged in the murder. The trial was completed 214 days from the day Robert King murdered Officer Floyd Haley. You know, it got over, what, like in March of the next year, they had the trial and he was found guilty. I remember mom and people talking about, the, you know, they tried to get him the insane route. We were just, you know, glad that they didn't buy that and he was found guilty, you know, and sent away to prison. And then uh, we had to somehow move on with our lives and continue on. King would serve his time in Minnesota's correctional system for just 17 years and then was paroled in 1985. At that time, there was little input sought from survivor families and Floyd's wife, Dawn, had already passed away from cancer a few years earlier in 1978. The state called Randy and his sister and eventually released King without any further notification to the family. What happened was maybe, I'm guessing, six months before he was let go, I, got, I did get a call, and I think my sister said off that she had gotten a call. Basically, just asking, well, what, do we th- what do we think of, of King being released? And I remember saying, just don't let him go. Just, I just don't want to talk about him. Just, just don't ever let him go. And the last thing I, I know is he was. He was just, um, you know, he was out of prison and, and made me madder than hell. And I just, I just, you know, and I thought, oh, let him go. And, and that was that. This senseless murder shocked this small southeast Minnesota community. When we lose an officer, it's not just the family or the agency that loses this hero. It's the community, it's the state, it's our country. We have over 300 million people in the United States. We have less than 900,000 cops taking on this calling, walking the thin blue line to serve and protect our families, our communities. A mere fraction of a percentage of our population willing to risk all to help, and in most cases help people they don't even know. Service before self. These men and women are true heroes, like Floyd Haley. For years, Officer Fred Kelly felt he was responsible for Floyd's death. Due to all the thefts at that boat shop next to the bowling alley, they were going to work together that week to do a stakeout and try and catch the thieves that had been stealing property there. They were sure the thieves would come back and hit the boat shop. 
never guessing that the bowling alley across the street would be the target. Due to staffing issues and some other challenges, that stakeout didn't happen. The stress of finding Floyd's body, the stress of losing his friend, the stress of feeling like it was his fault, it led to his career spiraling out of control. Uh, it really, really, really got bad. It got to the point, and I didn't care what I did. I didn't care who I was with. I didn't care if I ever went home. I was out drinking and partying and chasing other girls and stuff when I shouldn't have been. And... Fred couldn't control his temper anymore. He just got to the point where he didn't care. I didn't retire. I left the department in December of 72. It was because of Floyd Haley's death that I didn't finish my career as a policeman. I, I, I walked away from a guaranteed uh, pension with four and a half or five and a half years left. Uh, now, I'm not happy about that, but I, I couldn't. I, uh, I, you know, later in my life, uh, when my first wife decided to divorce me, I ended up, uh, we went counseling at the Mayo Clinic, and I talked to a psychiatrist at the Mayo Clinic. That's the first help that I had, and that wasn't until 776. I thought I dealt with it. I thought I was dealing with it, but I, apparently, you know, you don't walk away from a, a retirement with five and a half years uh, for nothing. You know, I, 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 I from that exchange when I got up there to see this guy, and you know, you get to, to talking to him, and he's pretty soon he's got me talking about Floyd Haley and he's got me crying and beating on the window and cussing and damning the whole thing, you know? And uh, uh, it, it took me till then to realize that it wasn't my fault that he died. So... Back then, there was no help for officers struggling with the stress of the job, so you were told to suck it up, to deal with it. Don't talk about it, just keep doing your job. It wasn't until years later that he got some help, but not before he left his career and his retirement behind. This era of cops, they were true heroes. Cops like Floyd, like Fred and Bert, they were tough, they were street smart, they were old school cops. They didn't have all of today's technology to rely on to stay safe and to solve cases. They were true heroes. Unfortunately, this era of cops also saw many struggles with marriages, with drinking and addiction problems and depression. It would be decades before law enforcement would start supporting their officers and helping them deal with the stress and the PTSD of this challenging career. He was a good guy. He was a real good officer. You could always talk to him and that kind of stuff. And he was always a jolly guy. I'm a rookie at that time, and I looked up at him as being something special.
It's still difficult for the Haley family to talk about their dad and what happened without getting emotional. The reality is they were just kids when he was taken from them, left to figure out life without their father that they all looked up to. Their mother, Dawn, would remarry a few years later, but then would pass away from lung cancer just 10 years after Floyd's death. Officer Floyd Haley's name was added to the National Law Enforcement Memorial in Washington, D.C. when it opened in 1991. At that time, there were over 12,000 heroes named on that wall. By 2021, that number had increased to over 21,000 men and women. Floyd's son, Randy, has served locally as a survivor member on the Southeast Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial Board. The board is building the area's first memorial in Southeast Minnesota at Soldiers Field Veterans Memorial Park in Rochester. Randy has volunteered his time for years to get this built, and he's excited to see the progress. It's, it's big. I mean, my, even my brother would say it's about damn time that they do something for Dad. It's, you know, it's been a long time coming. Um, I'm, I'm proud to be on the board and help any way I can. It's going to be very nice when, you know, everything's done and they put the benches on there. I'll be, have a place to go and take my kids and grandkids maybe and just continue to, you know, remember. If you'd like to donate to the completion and maintenance of the Southeast Minnesota Law Enforcement Memorial, you can find out more information on their website at www.lawenforcementmemorial.org. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health from the stress of serving in law enforcement, please know that there is help out there. It's okay to not be okay. You're stronger if you ask for help. In Minnesota, help is available through the Invisible Wounds Project at iwproject.org. Nationally, for help, you can reach out to firsthelp.org. We'll share these links to both of these organizations on Floyd's story. You can find it on our website at www.officerdownmemorialpodcast.com. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.